Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished from the Classical Ideas podcast. This is a podcast run by Greg Soden, and it's absolutely terrific. If you like the NBN, I'm sure that you'll like Classical Ideas. You can find it at classicalideaspodcast.lipson.com or on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the following interview. This is the Classical Ideas podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. Today's episode is a long discussion on religion in China. From 1966 to 1976, Chinese religion experienced a brutal crackdown in which thousands of temples were destroyed, and religion was essentially banned in the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. But religion has come back in China in a big way, and today's guest, Ian Johnson, is one of the most knowledgeable folks around on the resurgence of religion in China's post-Mao era. His new book, The Souls of China, was called A Masterpiece of Observation and Empathy by the New York Review of Books, and The Economist, who included the book on its best of 2017 list, said the book shows how a resurgence of faith is quietly changing the country. The Guardian said the book is full of moving encounters with Chinese citizens. Johnson succeeds in having produced a nuanced group portrait of modern Chinese citizens striving for a non-material answers in an era of frenetic materialism. I just finished the book myself, and it was stunning in its portrayals. If you hope to understand the trajectory of modern China, arguably the fastest rising international superpower, understanding the religious Taoist, Christianity, folk religion, and Islam of China will be helpful, if not essential. Johnson's book and this conversation should be assistive in that goal. Listening back to the conversation before publishing it, I learned dozens of new things I didn't latch on to during the initial conversation. A Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Ian Johnson is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and the New York Times. His work has also appeared in The New Yorker and National Geographic. He is an advising editor for the Journal of Asian Studies and teaches courses on religion in Beijing. He is the author of The Souls of China, Wild Grass, A Mosque in Munich, and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West. He is based in Beijing and spoke to me from Berlin, Germany. Without further ado, I bring you Ian Johnson. Ian, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I'm curious if you can just introduce yourself a little bit and a few of your jobs that you've had over the years. Yeah, my name is Ian Johnson. I'm... 55 years old. I was born in 1962. I uh, went, I grew up in Canada and in high school moved to the United States and I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. Um, I went to China for the first time in 1984 when I was 20, about 22 years old um, and went there. It was the senior year of college and I'd been taking Chinese for a while and just really I loved the language and wanted to go over there and learn about it. 
And uh, so I went there and stayed in 84, 85, um, and just kept going back and back. And I guess the greater China area, China and Taiwan, has become the focal point of my work over my life. And I've spent about 20 years in that part of the world. I worked at first as a newspaper reporter. Um, When I was in college, I worked at the college newspaper, and later I worked at a newspaper in Orlando, and then in Baltimore, and they in fact sent me to China. And then I worked at the Wall Street Journal, and then I I went back to China. Uh, I left in 2001 and came back in uh, 2009, and have basically been there since then. Um, first uh, for the Wall Street Journal, um, and now I'm freelance uh, for since 2010, and I've been a freelance writer. I write for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, um, and I also teach in Beijing. Um, I teach at a I teach undergrads at a academic exchange program called the Beijing Center for Chinese Studies, um, and I'm working on my PhD in. Uh, Chinese religion. Who's your PhD through? Uh, that is through Leipzig University. That's a German university. I got my master's degree in Germany and have a lot of ties there. So I'm going to get it through that university. So I'm going to tell a little story of how I found you. So I found you by doing a random search of the word Taoism and New York Times in Google looking for current events articles for to make my uh, my high school students read about Taoism and current events. Mm-hmm. And I stumbled across your article, The Rise of the Tao, in the New York Times, and we'll talk about that today and also a little bit about teaching because I'm really glad that you teach classes too because then we can kind of, um, you know, discuss those, uh, those teaching experiences in religion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, let's kind of dive in here with your book, The Souls of China, which I've been exploring a lot for the last couple weeks and really, really enjoying it. So I'm curious if you can say, just to set the tone for the whole conversation of why was religion so contentious in China over the past century, and why did reformers and revolutionaries attack it? Well, to understand this, we have to think of how a lot of societies were organized in traditionally. Nowadays, we often think of religion as a separate part of society, something that you might do or you might not do. And if you do it, you do it sort of on a certain day of the week, Friday, Saturday or Sunday at a certain place place, like a mosque or a synagogue or a church. Um, and it's, it's some sort of discrete, separate part of society. And, and what you do is, is your own business, and what I do is my own business. And this is a very modern way of looking at religion. And in, in most societies, religion was part of the fabric of everyday life. It wasn't something that was separated out from society or just a pillar of society. It was part of the entire society, including the political system. So in China, the emperor was the son of heaven, and his officials who went down and and ran this vast empire, they were also quasi-religious figures who had temples where they worshipped, and they were legitimized through religious ritual and practice. 
So when China was going through these crises in the 19th century, they were being attacked by countries, they were losing territory. It looked like China might be carved up into a bunch of colonies, a lot of the, the way that Africa was or the Indian subcontinent was. So Chinese reformers and revolutionaries wanted to change the system. And the system meant also getting rid of or changing the religious system because they were also intertwined. And it was really hard to separate out one from the other. So if you're going after the emperor, you're also going after the traditional religious system in the country. And so this started a huge wave of attack on religion that started in the late 19th century, and I would say only really ended a decade or two ago. Oh, that's so interesting. So I know that this sort of culminated, and um, there was an attack on this intertwined aspect of the public life and religion in starting in the 19, late 1940s with Mao. So what happened there? Well, I, um, people began to think that Chinese religion was superstitious, and it was holding people back, and it was incompatible with having a strong modern state. So even before the Mao era, there were these attacks. And Mao and the communists who took over in 1949, as you said, they just ramped it up. And they organized religion really tightly and only allowed five religious groups to exist in China. And those are the five official religions that exist in China today. And they are Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, and Christianity, which in China is divided into two separate groups, so Catholicism and Protestantism. So those are the five religious groups that exist in China. So the communist organists set these things up, set up churches and mosques and temples that were under government control, and but really gave them a very small place in society. Um, and by the 1960s, basically banned religion in what was known as the Cultural Revolution, which was a massive attack on all kinds of traditions in Chinese society, all kinds of traditional ways of life, but especially religion. So that by 1976, when Mao died, it, all places of worship, be they churches, mosques, or temples, were closed, and there was no functioning open religious life in China. Were these kinds of attacks on religion paralleled in other societies around the world as, as well? Yeah, that's a great question, and they it really they really were. I mean, if we think of um, the Ottoman Empire, which collapsed at the end of World War One, and that's modern day Turkey and also much of the Middle East, that was a religiously based empire. Uh, Islam was at the center of it. When the modern state of Turkey was formed um, in the 1920s, they had a radical policy of secularization, of getting rid of religion. Um, so the caliphate, this was these the secular ruler of all Muslims, uh, that was abolished. Uh, mosques were turned into museums. Uh, women were not allowed to wear the headscarf, and people were supposed to act like Westerners, like Europeans. Um, and, and we found this elsewhere as well. And even in the West, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, a lot of sociologists would have said that, well, religion is something that's dying out. It's just sort of a relic of a past society of and, and people as they get more modern they won't believe in religion anymore and it will just sort of die out and so in china you had similar ideas it was just carried through with an incredible brutality under the first 30 years of communist rule up until the late 70s 
So your book does a nice job of describing the four cleanups and the disruption of religion under Mao. However, religious life in China is being reborn over the past few decades. And one of the things, my favorite lines that you put in the book is that it's being revived through single heroic acts. And so, yeah, go ahead. And so I'm curious if you can elaborate on the actions by ordinary Chinese people, and then you say why these single heroic acts are important today. Yeah, what's really funny is um, when Mao died in 1976 and the communists began to adopt more moderate reforms and uh, capitalist-style economic reforms that we know today have created this economic superpower of China, um, they thought, okay, we'll allow a little bit of religion to come back because we were kind of brutal in the past. Let's allow old people, uh, a church or a temple or a mosque, to go to pray in. It won't harm anything. And when those old people die out, it will die out also. And they uh, issued some papers and, and orders to that effect to the local officials. But what happened was that religion just came back in a huge way starting in the 1980s. And these individual acts that you talk about, it wasn't a government policy. It wasn't through some major program of rebuilding. It was just ordinary people saying, I want to rebuild my church or I want to rebuild my temple or my mosque. And they just went out and did it. And most of the money came from themselves. Um, it was individual acts of piety, really, that, that did it. And that's what really impressed me, was how much of a grassroots uh, movement this was over the past, or this has been over the past 30, 35 years. And doesn't really seem like there's anything glamorous about it. I mean, it really is just putting things together piece by piece after it was destroyed. Yeah, you know, a lot of the a lot of what was lost in China was the religious infrastructure, especially for the so-called traditional religions. And by that, I mean Taoism, Buddhism, and you could also say Confucianism, folk religion. Those temples and were wiped out. There were roughly a million of them at the end of the 19th century, according to a survey. By the Cultural Revolution, the end of the Cultural Revolution, um, almost all of them had been destroyed. And, and even today, there's only maybe 100, 200,000. So there's a lot, there are more, and they're being rebuilt, but there's still a real lack of this kind of infrastructure, just the, the raw numbers of temples. And yeah, a lot of it has been people uh, don't donating money and time to build these things back up. Some of it with government support, but a lot of it on their own. So in the book, um, one of the things I'm really noticing is that there seems to be like a spiritually exploding um, Chinese population. And I know that in, in uh, an interview you gave recently, you were talking about the numbers of people. There were somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 million Muslims, um, maybe 12 million Catholics, and... Um, Let's see. Yeah. So I know that there's like an exploding population. So and during the Cultural Revolution, I mean, things must have been tense in China as far as like day to day life goes. So I know that you also described that there's like this, um, you know, people going on pilgrimage to Beijing to see Mao and fainting like it was Beatlemania. Um, so what kind of conflicts in the last 50 years does religion seem to be smoothing over? Is religion kind of bringing Chinese together or is it giving them more things to argue about? Well, I think it went positively in society since um, well, the Mao era ended is it gives people some values that they can believe in. If you remember, I talked about this attack on religion that wiped out a lot of the traditional system. Um, 
in the Mao period, there were a number of people who believed in communism. They thought that this is a great ideal. It will lead to a better society. But there were so many famines, so much political persecution under Mao, that by the time he died in 76, not very many people believed in communism anymore. So as the country began to take off economically, that satisfied a lot of material needs. People had, for the first time in a couple of generations, they had enough food to eat. They had clothing to wear. They had a roof over their head. It was relatively peaceful and stable in Chinese society. But there was still this thirst and this hunger for something to believe in. And I think this is sort of a universal desire that people have around the world that materialism is great, but it doesn't solve all problems. So religion can provide some kind of values for society. And I think that's what it's probably helped do. So you're saying that there's a connection between the resurgence of religion in China and what is happening with regards to the country's prosperity in the global marketplace? Yeah, I mean, ironically, or maybe paradoxically, just for, for communists or for modernizers like that, the growth of, uh, relig- of, of the country's economy has not meant a, a diminution of religion, but an increase in religion. So I think that's really been a paradox for a lot of people. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so I'm curious if we can dive into the, the book a little bit. So you have written this expansive volume where you talk about uh, Taoism, folk religion, Qigong, Christianity, um, all in, in one book, and it's called The Souls of China. So what were you seeing in your day-to-day life, like on the ground in China, when the premise for the book came to you? Well, I... I was always interested in religion. I grew up in a fairly religious household, uh, Protestant, Episcopalian, um, you know, went through communion and I served in the church and so on and so forth. And so when I went over to China for the first time in 1984, I was just curious about religious life. I didn't expect people would have the same religion as me. I didn't even want them to, but I just thought, what do they believe in? And what it seemed like in the 80s that there just wasn't very much going on. But when I went back in the 90s and began to work as a journalist, I noticed there was this increasing religious, I don't say fervor, but this interest in religion and spirituality and the big questions in life, that Chinese people were seeking things. And I began to think that, gee, you know, there's maybe a book to write in this. And then when I came back again in 09, it was no longer just a personal interest, but this was part of a central debate in society over what kind of country are we? What are our values? What do we stand for? So I began to think, gee, there really is a book, an important book to write, I hope. And it seems like you, I mean, you easily could have written single books about each one of the topics within the book. Like, how did you decide to, like, put put them all together? Well, what I did was I thought I wanted to write about, so China is a a multi-ethnic country with 56 ethnic groups. There's the Han Chinese, the ethnic Chinese, they make up 91% of the population, and the country gets its name from them. And there's also 55 other minority groups, which make up the other sort of 9% of the population. I decided I'd focus my book on the Han Chinese, the ethnic Chinese, because they make up the overwhelming percentage of the population. And I thought that the, the issues that are of importance to ethnic Chinese Chinese people are a bit different than for the minority groups. I think that would make a separate 
book. So I, my book does not talk very much about Islam or Tibet or the many other religions in these uh, parts of the of, of the country. Instead, I focus on Chinese people, and so. I then decided I'd need to look at the major religious groups and that there was something that unified um, all these different groups. You know, so I thought that I, I wanted to put all these religions together into one book because a lot of the themes seem to me similar. It's, it's this country striving, searching for answers for something beyond materialism. And this is something that goes beyond any one religion. Um, and I thought there might be a lot of if, if we put them together in one book, there might be a lot of commonalities. And so I wanted to also I definitely include Christianity, but I didn't want to just write about Christianity. I mean, a lot of people advised me and said, you know, it'll be a lot easier for people to accept if you just write about Christianity, all the bigger market if you write about that, um, because Christians abroad, especially in the United States, are going to want to read about that. But I thought. As interesting as Christianity is and as dynamic as it is as a religion in China, it's not the majority religion. Uh, most Chinese are not Christians. So I wanted to talk about what was of you know of, of, of what was moving most people and, and and so Taoism, as you you mentioned, is the indigenous religion in China. It's the only religion that did not come from somewhere else. And I thought that's I definitely wanted to include Taoism. Also, because it's growing pretty quickly, uh, Buddhism is the biggest religion in China. It came from India, albeit two thousand years ago. Um, so it's pretty indigenized. And those are the, those are probably if you include Buddhism, Taoism, and sort of folk religious practices that fall in between the cracks. That's by far the biggest uh, number of believers in China. That probably accounts for about 300 million people. And then you get the Abrahamic faiths, which make up about another 100 million people. So that's uh, Islam um, and Protestantism and, and Catholicism. And you add that together and you get a little bit less than 100 million. So, yeah, Taoism and Buddhism, I thought, should be larger in the book simply because there are more Chinese who believe in that. Excellent. So let's dive into some Taoist practices because this is something that I'm really curious about. And in my own teaching, like whenever I teach about Taoism, I always feel like I'm getting it wrong. And so I'm going to pick your brain on Taoism and Chinese Taoist practice today. And I'm really hope you're okay with that. No, I, I love Taoism. In fact, I got one of the things that got me interested in religion in China and Chinese religion in the 1990s. I met up with this crazy American businessman, and I say with great affection and he might be listening to your show brock, uh, brock silvers and brock was a taoist a practicing taoist um and he helped me and he set up a charity a u.s registered charity called the taoist restoration society and wanted to help rebuild taoist uh, temples or taoist temples in china um and he, I was working at the time as a newspaper reporter, and he said, you're traveling a lot. Why don't you keep your eyes open for temples that could use my support? So that got me looking and looking at temples and talking to Taoists. And I got to learn a lot about the religion. And I find it, it's a very hard religion to explain. And I, I completely sympathize with your uh, conundrum. You know, the world the so-called world religions and those are maybe the christianity islam buddhism also these are religions that have sort of 
missionary impulses that try to spread their religion to other parts of the world and have spread them to other parts of the world, those are often those religions I often think have a very coherent kind of story that you know you can explain Islam or Christianity or Buddhism in a neat compact um, way in a few minutes you can say you know Jesus Christ is the son of God came down to the earth to save people and here are some key ideas and if you believe in this and follow his teachings you can go to heaven when you die it's something like that you can say you know, with Islam you can say Muhammad was the last prophet and, this, um, and he brought forth these teachings and here they are and here's what you need to know and Sakyamuni was a prince who discovered that suffering is out there and suffering is caused by desire and if you eliminate desire you can help you can eliminate suffering and hear his his eightfold path way to doing that. Taoism is different. Taoism is um, a typical sort of traditional religion that existed before these big world religions came. It's a religion of holy mountains, of, of deified geographic features, deified people from history, famous generals, famous heroes from the past who have become who've turned into gods, which is also, though, based on very profound and old religious or spiritual texts like the Tao Te Ching, uh, written by Lao Tzu, you know, 2,500 years ago, roughly. And, you know, Lao Tzu himself is probably a mythical person, and this is probably written by different people, but those texts form the sort of philosophical basis about Taoism. But it's got a lot of folk religious practices. It's got things like geomancy or feng shui. Um, it has roots in Chinese medicine, the ideas behind Chinese medicine, Chinese painting, calligraphy. It really imbues Chinese civilization because it's such a deep structure part of the culture. So it's a it's a fascinating thing to look at and to study, but it's hard to summarize it in you know fifty words or less. Absolutely correct. I was thinking, and I that just the showed that because I, I just rambled on for five minutes. But anyways, yeah, no, it's fine. So let's picture like a normal person in China who may be somewhat devout and somewhat dedicated to their Taoist religious practices. So, what does an ordinary Taoist in China do on a, like a day to day basis? Yeah, well, the first thing is. Um, people who practice traditional Chinese religions often don't self-identify very well as belonging to a certain group. Um, this is because the word religion in China got has a very negative connotation. Um, it was it's an imported word, and again, this this goes back to this idea that religion was not something that you thought about as being something separate. So if, if you ask people, do you believe in a religion, and you phrase it to them like this, um, and there's been a lot of public opinion work on this, uh, people will think you're talking maybe about Christianity, maybe about Islam, but they won't think of Taoism as being part of that. Um, but I would say people who follow, people would say follow Taoist practices rather than saying, I am a Taoist. Probably the only people who would say, I am a Taoist, would be Taoist priests or lay people who have really um, signed up at a Taoist temple and do volunteer work there. The average person who goes to a temple probably wouldn't even self-identify as being a Taoist or even a Buddhist. They might just say, well, I believe in traditional Chinese ideas or beliefs, um, and I do go to the temple regularly. And, oh, does that make me a Taoist? Oh, okay, then I guess I'm a Taoist. But they wouldn't necessarily, in an opinion poll, say, I am a Taoist. 
Um, that was sort of a, so what do they do? I mean, I think a lot of people, they will go to temple regularly. Um, that might be a couple of times a month um, because there's holy days that people go to. Um, they may have certain practices that they do, for example, uh, respecting their elders um, by having a little shrine in their home with, say, deceased family members, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, photos there, a little candle or a little incense stick. Um, they may even have a little shrine in their home to a Taoist deity. Uh, they may do Taoist physical practices, um, and what I mean by that are kinds of exercises that are a bit like yoga um, or tai chi, some sort of um, movements of your body, like shadow boxing, that you may do in a quasi-meditative state um, that will help you achieve something spiritually. And, and they may also just meditate. Um, so there's a whole amalgam of practices that people do. Um, individually, that does not necessarily make you a Taoist, but perhaps cumulatively, that does. So you said that the in the book and in the conversation just now, that the Tao Te Ching is kind of viewed as like the founding text of religious Taoism, whereas I've mm-hmm. always kind of thought about it as like a more of a philosophical text. So, like, yeah. which is it? Is it religious or is it philosophical? Is it one and the same or distinct? Um, what do you think? Well, the first thing I say is that all religions have a continuum of things that are highly uh, philosophical to, you know, if you say, what are the confessions of St. Augustine? Would that be a Catholic text or not? Or would that just be a philosophical text? It's sort of sort of similar. And the, specifically, though, to your question, um, the Tao Te Ching was written or was compiled uh, out of sayings by, by various people. We want to just say it was written 2,500 years ago um, and ascribed to this guy called Lao Tzu, the, the, the old sage or something. Um, and that was a book of philosophy that was read by people. We don't know exactly what religious life was like necessarily 2,500, 3,000 years ago, but we assume it had a very important text because it was found and buried with people in their graves and so on. Um, 2,000 years ago, uh, almost exactly 2,000 years ago, there was uh, the formation of religious Taoism that was probably a reaction to the arrival of Buddhism from what's today India. Um, there, you know, in Buddhism comes and they, they, they've got this cadre of, of monks that can espouse Buddhist thought very clearly and they have monasteries and so on and so forth. And they're pushing into China and these traditional belief systems then organized kind of like buddhism they set up temples and they adopt a holy text and that is the Tao Te Ching. and so the first early text that people were even singing and reciting in temples in Taoist temples was the Tao Te Ching. so people still read it as a philosophical text and even people who maybe didn't think of themselves as particularly religious through the ages, up to today, would read the Tao Te Ching and say, this is really interesting, this is really profound. But for religious Taoism, it's also the most important text. And Lao Tzu, the person to whom it's ascribed, the sort of mythical writer, is a god, or one of the most important gods in Taoism. So it has a dual function. That's really interesting. I think that you're really going to help my explanations of that whenever I talk about Taoism in class now. I, <laughs> that's really helpful. Um, and a bunch of my students actually just read uh, and made films about um, Taoist immortals and Lao Tzu. Oh. And wow. maybe I'll send you a couple links to those later on because they're on YouTube and they are a lot of fun. Oh, wow. 
Great. Yeah. So, so as a Westerner, you who has had the great fortune to closely observe like many Taoist ceremonies on many different occasions, what is like most impressive to you about ceremonial or religious Taoism? Well, I find the whole um, the ceremony is is often very moving and very profound. You have these um, priests or nuns who perform the ceremonies. They're dressed essentially like emperors or officials. They're wearing incredibly elaborate silk brocaded uh, cloaks and 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 robes, um, and they carry out this very obscure ceremony that for a lot of people probably even modern day chinese people is not really understandable it's a bit like a catholic service pre-vatican ii in other words when the priests are, are are saying the ceremony in latin and most people don't know what that means in china it's a little bit better because they're saying it in classical chinese which with a little bit of work a modern day person can still understand because there's a lot of links to modern-day vernacular Chinese. But it's a pretty profound... It's a, the language is beautiful. Uh, they take phrases from the Tao Te Ching. When you read along next to... And you can follow it along. They have you know, prayer books, and you read it along. It's, it's a very beautiful language, just like, say, um, reading the Book of Common Prayer in the King James Version is in, say, the Protestant tradition. Um, you have this incredible language. Um, and you have, uh, I think, you, what, what's, what they try to do with these ceremonies is essentially the priest or the nun creates a holy space in front of the altar. So this is what the movements are for. This is what the, um, the prayers are for. And you essentially draw down the God or gods to the present, to the temporal world, and give them a message, ask them for something. In a way, it's sort of not too different from, say, Christianity, where you have the prayers for the people, and people, you know, there's often the refrain, Lord, hear our prayer. It's sort of similar. You want to convey a message to uh, a God. So this is ultimately what's going on at, the, at these ceremonies. And they're um, very, when you're watching them, you can just almost go off in a trance because there's this swirling of the robes and the cloaks and the saying of this beautiful language and the incense and the candles and so on. And it can be a very moving experience. What's like the what's like the Taoist depiction? Uh, I know there are many different deities. So how do Taoists and Taoist ceremonies see a god in the services? I think the the main thing to understand is that they the gods can be seen as perhaps analogous to saints in Catholicism. So you're you you can worship an individual saint or god, but ultimately you're what you're looking what you're praying to is the sort of underlying idea, the Tao, the thing that flows through all people and all time and all space. So this is something like, you could say, something like a monotheistic god at, at, at heart. Um, but there are the individual gods, and there's a, there's a very complex pantheon that's often very, it's often compared to a the bureaucracy in traditional China, that you had the, <laughs> the emperor, and you had the emperor's minister, 
emperors and the emperor officials, and you had sort of layers upon layers of gods. Um, and there are also some very funny gods. It's very interesting gods. There are popular gods, the eight immortals, for example, who are, you see them a lot in folk. Um, folk religion and in even cartoons and comic books and, and movies and songs and things like that. And these are popularly known gods. There's gods like Lu Dongbin who have interesting and funny tales told about them. Um, but ultimately, I guess the, the bottom line is that these are all part of the same system. The Ur root is the same. My my student's personal favorite seems to be the immortal with the iron crutch. Oh yeah, he's a great a great guy. Yeah, and, they, uh, they love and there's it. there's a lot of there's a lot of goddesses in Taoism. Also, there's a a, a strong female component, um, and, and which I I think is quite interesting because this might harken back to matriarchal beginnings or origins of Chinese civilization that have gotten lost over the past. Uh, a couple thousand years, but which you still see come out in the pantheon. Uh, so that's another interesting aspect to Taoism. So I know there's also like focus on like energy and chi and meditation. Um, and you clearly depict some meditation practices from Taoism in your book. And I've mm-hmm. had, I've had a few Buddhist uh, meditation teachers on this show. And so I'm curious if you can describe how Taoist meditation differs from Buddhist meditation, um, whether it be uh, Chan or Zen or Vipassana or what have you. Yeah, in the book I go to a a Zen retreat run by this guy called Master Nan, who has had a retreat or has has still a retreat uh, on this lake in, in China. A lot of Zen practice is you're trying to, or Buddhist practice is you're trying to create a stillness and an emptiness um, that will help you ultimately come out of the meditation more focused and I don't want to say relaxed, but maybe focused is the better word on your on your spiritual practice. Um, Taoism works with energy, and you often try to, and the one that I participated in and and still practice to some degree today um you you bring light into your body you you use a vision you create a sense of light bring it into your body and then you turn yourself inward your eyes inward and you look down into your organs into the inside of your body and try to purify yourself by moving this light from one organ to another it's a very uh complicated way and, and sometimes it's not necessarily so calming. I mean, it can kind of be exhausting to do this because you're you're focused so much on 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 all of this that you're uh, you you, so you come out of this sometimes tired. Um, so it's it's a bit it's a bit different. I think it's um, it is trying to create a purity, which I guess is a, is similar, but. It's um, not an emptiness. It's more of moving chi and energy around your body to to purify yourself. So you have to like picture your internal organs while you're doing this. Yeah, and these would be the internal organs according to Chinese medicine. So um, it wouldn't be that you needed to get a um, and you know an, an atlas to the human body and sort of say, oh, my heart looks like this or my lungs you know, look like this or something like that. But you have the five organs in traditional Chinese medicine or in traditional Chinese thought, and you uh, imagine the qi flowing from one to another in a, a pattern, and you're trying to then 
yeah, purify your organ, purify yourself by doing this. So let's kind of like take Taoism and then spread this thread to the other faiths that are taking um, China by storm. So how does Taoism influence the Chinese practices of Christianity and Islam? Like, can you see any Taoist influences when you walk into a Chinese mosque or church? I don't think too much. I would say direct. It's not like there's a, a big Tai Chi symbol or a, some sort of meditation practices that people do that are directly the same. Um, maybe more deeply you can see the impact of traditional Chinese society on these um, practices. For example, one of the things that people, uh, Christians in China, often talk about is how Chinese Christianity is often heavily influenced by the idea of a sort of strong man or having a very charismatic leader. Not that there aren't charismatic leaders in other parts of the world in Christianity, but that uh, Chinese churches are often somewhat authoritarianly run uh, not, and, and often revolve around a very strong, dominant pastor. Uh, for example, Protestant churches are like that, and, and I describe a church a bit like that. That's one of my case studies in the book. Um, so that might be one deeper way, but I don't, I don't know that there's a direct impact. Say, so it seems like maybe Chinese Christianity and Islamic chur- uh, churches and mosques are more inspired by like the one-party state system. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Or you just say traditional authoritarian oh, ways wow. of running society. Yeah. Oops. Um, so your article that you put out in 2010, it's called the rise of the Dow and anybody can find it just by searching rise of the Dow in New York times. So that article has a really interesting case study as well with an abbess who is trying to rebuild a temple and she's very genuine in her practices and her motivations. And does that, um, does that seem to indicate that some Taoist temples are like kind of like touristy and tourist traps? Oh, very much so. This is a a big problem uh, in Chinese religion that Chinese talk about all the time, and the government is aware of as well. And it's not something completely unfamiliar to us. If you you know if you go to Europe and you go to some of the great cathedrals, uh, some of them are I don't know if they exactly charge admission, but many are on the verge of charging admission or do the heavy push to donate money, donate money because they need some way to survive, to keep these churches renovated. And similarly, Taoist and and, and Buddhist traditional religious temples, they often had land holdings, and they maybe cultivated tea and things like that, and sold this, and that's how they financed their monasteries. That's all gone, and they just have these buildings. And for the upkeep of the buildings, they often have to ask for money. So there's sometimes a real commercial angle to the Temples and some of it's pushed by local government officials who can benefit from this. Uh, they see this as a tourism draw, and sometimes you go to a temple or a holy mountain. And I, I've been to some beautiful mountains in China, and you get hit up for a hundred or two hundred yuan. So there's roughly six yuan to the dollar. So say it's two hundred yuan, you're talking about a thirty dollar plus admission ticket, and it's you know. It's, it's, it's high by any standards, but especially in China, that's pretty steep, just to get onto this mountain. And the money often doesn't even go to the places of worship. It goes to the local uh, government officials who keep the money as some sort of tourism revenue. So the temples are often misused uh, by local officials as 
uh, economic development, um, uh, you know, motors. And the temples don't get too much money. And I remember going up one mountain, and I just paid 200 yuan at the bottom of the mountain, walked up, walked up, and finally got to this Taoist temple. And the guy said, oh, 10 yuan to get in. I said, I just paid 200 yuan. Now you're, you're hitting me up for another 10. He said, we don't see any of that 200. All we'll get is this 10. And I said, okay. So I paid another 10, which is like a buck 50 or something like that, and then got into the temple. But that's those are the problems that people face. And that abbess that I wrote about, I've known her for a long, long time. I've known her for 25 years. And she is a remarkable woman, and she refuses this um, admission fees. Her temple is free and open. And I think actually in the long run, she probably gets more money that way than she would by charging because people feel that it's an authentic place of worship and they donate money on their own volition so much more freely than if they had to buy a ticket. So how would a tourist like me, so say I was going to China, how would I find an authentic temple? Well, it's hard, you know, it's hard to say because the two are, are, are mixed together. If you go to Beijing, one of the most popular temples is the Lama Temple. And this is a Tibetan Buddhist temple. Um, it's a beautiful temple. It's really worth visiting. And I think it costs 20 or 30 yuan to get in. So not the end of the world, but something like $5. Uh, and you might think, well, this is commercial. And it is kind of commercial. But when you go in there, you will see people really worshiping and really praying. And so I think to me, that's, that's an authentic temple because there are people worshiping and praying there. So it's, it's not always a sort of black and white issue where this is, this is commercial, this is all bad. This is some sort of uh, good, uh, pure temple that isn't commercial. The, the problem is these things are often mixed together. So I want to transition us into some questions about the monotheistic practices in China. So I hear all the time about how, um, Islam and Christianity are skyrocketing in China. So what do you see on the ground in your day-to-day life in Beijing? Like, does Islam or Christianity stand out in public, or is it still kind of like on the sidelines as far as, like, visibility and symbols go? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I, I would say that Christianity is skyrocketing. Um, I would say Islam is not really skyrocketing. I, I would say Islam... Um, has been defined as a practice. So in modern day China, Islam is essentially an ethnicity. Um, I said there were 56 ethnic groups in China. Ten of them are defined as being Muslim. And if you are a member of those 10 ethnic groups in China, you are by definition Muslim. There's almost no conversions to Islam. So if I'm a, an ethnic Chinese person, the number of ethnic Chinese people who convert to Islam are, are, are tiny, maybe just by marrying into um, a Muslim family or something like that. Um, and the number of Muslims in China has not increased that greatly. It's increased basically just by population growth. Um, so there's 23 million Muslims in China, but that's only if you as- assume that all members of those 10 ethnic groups, every man, woman, and child is a practicing Muslim. That's how they get the number 23. That's the total population of those 10 groups. So I think it's it's there. It's definitely part of China's religious landscape. It's been around for over 1,200 years. It's got an interesting history. There are beautiful mosques to see in China, but it's not hugely important in the heartland of China. On some of the uh, fringes of China, you'll, Islam is more important, like in the province of Xinjiang. And there you have uh, independence movement, you have problems of violence, uh, terrorism, and Islam has gotten uh, 
well, I somehow brought into into this as well by some of the people who are searching for independence. They're often uh, advocate Islam as well. Um, so it's gotten sort of intertwined with this uh, messy uh, independence movement in, in Xinjiang. But it's not so pre- present overall in the rest of China. Uh, Christianity is different. So what kind of predictions about the futures of these religions in China would you be willing to make at this time? Like, what's the future of Islam and Christianity in China? Well, Christianity is different in that Christianity has um, grown uh, rapidly. It's popular among ethnic Chinese who make up 91% of the population. The number of Protestants, for example, went from 1 million in 1949 to about 50 million today. Now, still, 50 million out of an overall population of 1.4 billion, it's relatively small, but um, it's growing rapidly. And I think... The predictions I'd make is that they, the group, this will continue. Um, the number of Protestants and, and, and Catholics is likely to keep increasing in China um, because it they, they appeal to the search for spirituality in China. Um, and I, I think this is just something that's continuing in China, despite the country's material progress. There's this great uncertainty in the country over what it means to be Chinese, what the country stands for. And religions are helping to provide answers. So are the religions of China a threat, in your view, to the one-party state? I know that you've said that the Christians are viewed by some people in the government as being uh, kind of like uproarious. Um, is there is there a threat to the one-party system in China with the resurgence of religion? Well, I don't think there's an immediate threat. Um, if you think of... In the Cold War in Poland, there was the Catholic Church, which was an important uh, pillar in the anti-government movement and to some degree helped overthrow the communism in Poland. And similarly, Protestantism in East Germany was a center for opposition groups and so on. I don't think religion will have such a direct political threat to the government, but what it does do is it creates alternative sources of alternative value systems, and it reinforces Uh, universal ideas like justice that I think all religions have at heart, the sense of that there are higher values in society than any political program, than any political party, no no matter how mighty or strong it might seem today. And the Communist Party does seem pretty strong today. Um, But religious groups, be they Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Buddhist, Taoist, they have this underlying idea of, of, of justice, of some sort of higher values, higher allegiances that are hard to shake. And I think in the long run, that can help change the political and social structures in China. So you've got a long history of like impressive journalistic um you know, feats basically, including a Pulitzer um, for your reporting on Falun Gong. And I'm curious if you can, like, I want to I talk about your journalism as well. So I love your descriptions um, in the book. Some of the scenes, like you really have me laughing out loud, like when you're really getting involved in some of the exercises. <clears throat> and so I'm curious if you can talk about your um your your work here in this regard so i love your descriptions of you like power walking um in the book and the challenges of meditation and you obviously enjoy doing deep dives in your research so what kind of religious or um practices do you most enjoy practicing while doing research like what was the most fun experience you have while making this book 
Uh, you know, there were several. I I was, um, I guess as a Protestant, I found it just very, it was fascinating to go to the church in Chengdu and spend so much time there. The pastor who runs that church, Wang Yi, is one of the, gives is the best sermonizer of or of anyone I've, I've I've heard practically in any language, and I, I thought he was just an amazing speaker who could explain the Bible to people who were many of whom were new converts and had a real profundity, a very but a great way of connecting with people. It was a very dynamic church. It was it was great to go there, and I felt often very humbled because like a lot of converts, um, and many of them were converts. And this guy Wang Yi, the head of the church, he just converted in. 2005. And when I met him for the first time in 2011, he'd just been a Christian for six years, but it seemed like he'd memorized the Bible backward and forward and sort of asking me questions that I felt like completely incompetent because I hadn't, you know, remembered all the verses of the Bible. And it forced me to actually get an app for my iPhone called the Olive Tree Bible Study, uh, which allows you to give you the Bible in different uh, version Bible study, uh, um, you know, book books that you can attach to it, and and, and really help me brush up on my Bible reading. <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun, sort of humbling and embarrassing. Um, and I think the yeah, the meditating was was a lot of fun because this was something that has a long tradition. Foreigners have been interested in Chinese meditation practices for a long time. And by coincidence, the thing we were learning, the technique we were learning, had actually been translated in the 1920s, first by a German translator, this guy Richard Wilhelm. And you can find the translation online. It's now in the public domain. domain. Um, you, you can buy the books, I think, you know, on, on Amazon, maybe for a dollar or two, but there's PDF versions of it. It's called The Secret of the Golden Flower. And this was a really it's complicated meditating technique that I was talking before about bringing, bringing light into your body. Sure. And it's, it's, yeah, it was very interesting. And I, I'd never done anything like that before in my life, but I felt it, it was something that I had to sort of do in a first person way because it's the only way to really get into these groups is to be there and be part of the group and i didn't put myself in the center of this, these stories but i i wanted to at least tell readers well i am here um because i think it's it's also a form of honesty to the reader that you're anytime you observe people closely in a, say an ethnographic way you're 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 living among people you're changing your subjects because you're there Right, and especially as a foreigner in China, my presence there maybe changed how they reacted to some degree. Of course, you're there for weeks and months at a time, so people kind of forget about you at times. But I wanted to sort of tell people about my experiences a little bit to give them almost a bit more information about how I went about collecting this. That I think, in a way, it empowers readers because it tells you what the conditions were. I don't like narrative writing that is has an omniscient narrator and pretends that the observer is invisible because there's no way we can be invisible. We are there. We are part of the story, like it or not. So that's why I put myself in there. I don't have a dominant first person character in the book, but it's, it's still there. And you, you, yeah. So I don't know if that works or not. Yeah. And I, and I love the fact that you obviously have good relationships with the people that are in the book. Like I could feel your friendships and I could feel the relationships that you had cultivated like as people over the years. Yeah. I think I, I people said, did you like the people I wrote about? I really liked about all the groups I, I, I wrote about. And I, I think the people I was the closest with um, were the 
uh, folk religious practitioners in Beijing. They had a pilgrimage group, and a pilgrimage group is a group of people going to pilgrimage together. It's quite simple. But they were working class people, and in a lot of ways, you know, we didn't have that much in common, but they were just so open and so willing to share and they were uh interested in what i in my life and I, I felt a real affinity to them and they were they were just you know great open-hearted people um it's funny also because they I, I learned chinese mandarin chinese and i thought my chinese is pretty good and these people are from beijing and i thought this will be the easiest group to talk to there'll be no dialect problems but they spoke a kind of ur beijing that was a bit like you know, if you can imagine going back to London a hundred years ago and talking to somebody with a Cockney, you know, accent, it was almost it was really hard to understand them at first. And but they were really patient and uh, went back over and over and explained their uh, explained their lives and their stories to me many times. So I was I was really grateful to them for that. So obviously, being a journalist in China is probably different from being a journalist in other parts of the world. And like you mentioned, like things like sneaking into buildings without being observed, and also the worry of like a room being bugged. Um, do you face any scrutiny as a foreign journalist writing about religion in China? Well, writing about this book was really uh, pretty easy in the sense that I had access to these groups. They were all open and willing to talk to me. I mean, I. Obviously, when you're writing about somebody, they have to be willing to talk to you, uh, at least when you're doing that kind of close, in-depth observation. Um, but as a journalist, yeah, there are some sensitive topics, dissidents, political change, the leadership, Xi Jinping, um, those kind of issues. And I have written about that. I, in my, Wearing my other hat, writing for the New York Review of Books or the New York Times, I also write about politics. Um, and sometimes that's, those topics are sensitive, such as over the summer in, in, in July, there was the death of the famous Chinese dissident who won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Liu Xiaobo. And yeah, I wrote about that. And, but I, I don't feel, I don't feel that the government is following me, you know, or all my footsteps or, or that sort of thing. I think that can happen and that has happened in the past, but um, it depends what buttons you're pushing or what you're writing about. And overall, talking about social change is okay. It's not that taboo of a topic. And I know that the Souls of China, um, so the subtitle is The Return of Religion After Mao. I know that your book is currently not published in China. Um, why do you think right. that is? I think those two words, religion and Mao, in the title, were enough to get it banned. <laughs> so even English language expat bookstores can't stock it in China, which is a pity. Uh, so a lot of people had to buy the Kindle version or something like that. But um, there will be a Chinese language version being, that will be published in Taiwan. Um, unfortunately, that won't be distributed uh, on mainland China. But... I, you know, I'll I'll get copies of it over to friends and to the subjects of the book, and and I'll be I'm really happy that that will happen because then they'll be able to read what I wrote, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of criticism and feedback and and whatnot. But I I think that's really important because you don't want to just write about people without them knowing what you've written about. And yeah, I mean I've I've gone back to them many times and and told them about what I'm going to write about and got their corrections and their input, but it'll be interesting to see what they see, what they think about the completed project. 
I love this. I love that you just mentioned that it's important for people to read what you wrote um, as far as like the people that are in the book. And as a journalist, you also seem to appreciate that China has this um, this notion that the written word is supreme. So why is it why is that important and how does it vary from like the West? Yeah, in a way, it reminds me perhaps uh, um, of Judaism, where the word is so important and what kept the Jewish people together over the centuries or millennia of expulsion and living in different parts of the world was the Torah and, 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 and this primacy of the word being so important. I think in China, of course, there are many great cultural achievements of the Chinese people over the over the centuries and millennia, beautiful architecture and paintings and so on and so forth. But the word and the books are so important. I think the highest Chinese art, probably traditionally what's seen as the highest art, is calligraphy. It's writing words out on paper. Uh, and, and that's what happens live. And that's why Yes, so much of the infrastructure, if you go to Chinese cities, so much of it is new. What you, if you look around you in a Chinese city, it's hard to find a building that's older than 30 or 40 years old, let alone, you know, 2,000 years old or however long, how, you know, Chinese civilization is so old. Um, it's hard to find anything like that in Chinese cities. But what keeps people being Chinese, so to speak, or what keeps the religion and the faith and the beliefs together are these books and the writing. And I think that that's what did it. And so one of the, peop- the people I wrote about in the book were these rural Taoists in the countryside. And so many of their ritual manuals, essentially their prayer books, were burned in the Cultural Revolution. But they managed to keep some of them buried and by hook and by crook. They put them back together and copied them out again. And that's what allowed the practice to revive, even though most of the temples are destroyed in the countryside and so many of the other things were destroyed. But the books survived. And that was the key. That's some of my favorite writing from the first half of the book is where you're talking about the the yin yang men and the inheritance of basically the priesthood and Taoism and also how um, they were able to put these things back together even after the years of destruction. And it's really just a moving portrait of the importance of the written word and how that can tie um, past generations to the present and we can see where we came from and why all these texts matter. So those are some of my favorite scenes in the book. Oh yeah, no, that to me was a a great that that was an important section also for me because I didn't want the book to be all about cities and city people. There's still about half the people in China live in the countryside and so um, I really wanted to spend time in the countryside and, and these people were very open, lived with them in their farmhouse and uh, they had a lot of time for me also and I went tagged along on endless funerals and rituals that they carried out and I also, it was very nice the people whose, the family whose funeral was taking, you know, for whom the funeral was taking place. They were often very open also and, you know, we'd, I'd go ahead and I'd say, is it okay if I tag along with these priests who are coming to bury your grandfather does that bother you and i 99 i mean actually in all cases people were like fine no you want to understand how things are done here in china and tell people in the outside world about that that's great go ahead and you know just and they were often willing to not always they were always willing to stop answer questions and the hospitality um, of people was just remarkable really So religious studies teacher to religious studies teacher, me to you, 
I'm always curious about talking to other folks who teach about religion in schools in whatever capacity. What is your favorite thing about being a religious studies teacher and studying religion in such depth? Well, I think one thing is to show maybe two things. Um, one is to show how different religious faith can be, how the practice of religion can be, and just break the students out from uh, our, their overwhelmingly sort of Abrahamic monotheistic way of thinking about religion by taking them to these uh, folk religious practitioners in their homes and just reading about their work and, and showing them how how religion can be done otherwise and how it doesn't always have to be done religion doesn't always have to take place in a church or a mosque or something like that. It can also be uh, differently uh, in, a, in a temple. And But also I think what's interesting is the commonality of so much of religious experience, this desire, as I was saying before, about justice and, and faith and, and values and doing good deeds. And uh, in the very first chapter, this old uh, man whose pilgrimage associate, who started this pilgrimage association, who was dying, he said, there's uh, no end to doing good works. And, and he actually, and his son made a point of saying, it's not just our religion, it's your religion too. All religions have this. And I thought, boy, that kind of interfaith understanding is kind of rare nowadays. And that kind of openness from people who really, you know, don't have a, a great education, but they just uh, got it. I thought it was quite moving. Yeah, and I think that can create some commonality for, like, Western practitioners of any religions to see, like, what the East and the West can, like, learn from each other as well. Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's the great thing is to see how many things overlap, um, that when you get away from the fact that, boy, they've got these temples that are really colorfully painted and these statues, and what do they all mean, and I can't understand it, and you look at the motivations behind it and what people are searching for, and so much of it is, is similar. There's a, a dissatisfaction, not just in China, but in the West also over the extreme materialism in society, and this idea that everything has to be justified economically, and that if you don't have some economic rationale, then you don't have any rationale. And people feel that, I think, in Western countries, but also in China. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's really interesting. I think this is part of a, a global conversation we're having about how to make our societies more just and more inclusive. What's your biggest lesson? That, I know you've been, how long have you been in, in China again? Uh, about 20 years. So what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned from your time in Asia? <laughs> well, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's specifically about being in China, but it's just that if you want, if you want to talk to people and you want to understand people, you have to spend time. I mean, you cannot paradrop into places and rat-a-tat-tat sort of get the story. That's okay for daily journalism, where if you have some kind of a, something happens and you have to get the story today because you're working after all for a daily newspaper and you don't have the luxury of waiting weeks or months, that's perfectly understandable and fine. But if you want to understand the deeper structure to people's lives, you have to spend time with people and you have to immerse yourself with them and try to, as much as possible, um, live with them and spend time with them. And there's no there's no substitute for that. And I, I kind of worry that nowadays with so much being available online that the importance of going to a place has been diminished. It's like, well, I can write about China just as well 
call from New York or Berlin because I can read all the Chinese newspapers online. And now we laugh at things like Google Translate. But I bet in a few years, Google Translate is going to be fantastic. And you'll just be able to hit, hit a button and it won't matter whether it's Chinese or Arabic or whatever. It's going to give you a perfect translation. And you're going to have this idea that because you can read the blogs and you can read the newspapers or whatever from faraway lands that you understand those countries. But I still think to really understand places, you've got to be there and you've got to go there and spend time. And so that's why I encourage people, if it's at all possible, uh, when you're studying or, or whatever, to spend some time in a different culture, whatever that culture is, to take yourself out of your comfort zone and to go there, wherever that is. So, Ian, you've been so generous with your time today, and I just wanted to tell you how much I love The Souls of China, and I'm also looking forward to diving into your other books, Wild Grass, um, A Mosque in Munich, Rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West, um, and I'm curious if you can just tell people where they can find you if they want to know more about your work. Um, yeah, I have a, a website um, that's www.ian-johnson.com, and that's where you can find a list of my articles and books, and there's also contact information there. You can send me an email, and I'll get it, and I'll answer it. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, I always appreciate I talk to, um, as you know, high school classes, university classes and students and uh, people just write me out of the blue and uh, you know, I mean, everybody's busy but I, I always answer stuff and I, I I appreciate the feedback. I'm always interested in people's experiences um, whether it's the first time or whether they're veteran observers. It's always interesting to talk to people so feel free to contact me. And I can confirm that you do write back because you've written me back 100% of the times that I've written you over the past year and a half. <laughs> I'm compulsive. What can I say? <laughs> there you go. Um, Ian Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the Classical Ideas podcast. This has been a real pleasure. Well, my pleasure, too. It's been great talking to you, and I, I love your podcast. I think it's just such a great service and just so interesting. I've, I'm listening to it, too, and uh, I'm learning so much also about all different kinds of faiths. And It's a, a great service that you're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Classical Ideas Podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.